John, there are a lot of games, like so many games, too many games, one might say, because I've been reviewing games for four years now, and I've also just been playing games pretty much my entire life with a focus on the board game hobby for the last, like, 11 years or so. And there are a lot of games I haven't played. I don't know. You've probably played just as many, if not more, games than me. How are you doing? Have you hit all the classics? I have not. I have a, <laughs> some shameful holes, which is which is why we... Uh, let's, you know, let's edit shameful holes out of this one. <laughs> Please tell me more about your shameful holes. <laughs> there are... There are some glaring omissions in uh, in the list of games that I've played. Um, for someone who's played, I mean, do you keep track of, of all the titles you've played? I mean, we're nerds. We like stats. Yeah, you know, like I, I keep track of the game plays that I do. Like I log plays on BGG, which is really nice. And then I, I try to just kind of think about what are some of the iconic games that I haven't played and do I have opportunities to play them at like conventions and that kind of stuff. But it just feels exhausting. And I thought that when you asked me to do this list as our next Casual Friday, I was like, dude, that, that's a fantastic idea. That we would focus on some iconic games that we've never actually played. Well, I haven't played and you haven't played, but maybe we've Respectively, played. Respectively, yeah. I know there's some overlap. Yeah, yeah. So... Before we actually dive into it, I, I want to know what it was some of your rationale is like this was a cool conversational topic that we could hit on. I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm going to just point to have a kid and have your, <laughs> have your kid tell you, have your 12 year old tell you that they really like X, Y, Z and look at it and go, it's just like. It's just like this thing from the 80s, but like with worse writing and more Disney princesses or something. I don't know. But but that was basically what it was. Is like every time I hear some of some of the music that comes on or I see the thing she's into, the, the TV show, the movie, whatever it is, you know, I look at that and go, man, this is a lot like such and such, you know, that I did when I was a kid. And it got me thinking about, you know, uh, it always fascinates me. It's like, it's like you're the music guy maybe you've got some good examples for this but um you know when you listen to that that one band and you really like it and you you're talking about it with someone and they say oh yeah it's just like this you know they have a different sound but you know a lot of their stuff was influenced by this it kind of makes you want to go explore maybe you're not going to like the older stuff better because obviously you're into this this newer stuff for a reason but maybe it informs some of why you like it. Maybe it tells you some of the history. Or maybe it's just, you know, checking a box, like reading, you know, if you've never read The Sound and the Fury, you're, you're missing something or whatever, you know? Right. It's being able to look at what are the iconic things that led us to where we are as a culture or community, which, you know, board games, the, there's a lineage and a history of these things influencing one another. And in some ways, it's happening in a much more rapid development than a lot of other art forms and hobbies and that kind of stuff, where you can clearly see game X became game Y, which became game Z. And being able to track that lineage is is really cool. So that that's kind of what we're focusing on today, is just going through the top five each, which becomes the top 10 cardboard herald games that are iconic in some way for some reason not necessarily because of how old it is or specifically how influential it is but it's iconic for some reason that we just haven't played so 
Where's it starting, John? Well, I should start with, um, God, there's no better way to say it. A little bit trashy, little, <laughs> little, little decadent, little, little degraded, uh, kingdom death monster. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, 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 I struggled with this one because I was just like, you know, part of me says that no, no gamer with real pedigree would say that this is, you know, a game you have to play. It's not to be pretentious, but it, I mean, it, it, it's a bloated Kickstarter, but it's also the bloated Kickstarter. Well, it, I think this was the game that actually alerted me, and maybe you as well, absolutely. Uh, about I mean, you board showed game me this Kickstarter. Game. It's like, whoa, there's like people who aren't publishing games just out of their own money. They're going to the public and saying, we'll make you a game if you give us money. And that was kind of... I had this vague awareness of Kickstarter, but this is what really kind of opened my eyes to the entire concept, let alone board game Kickstarter. I, you know, it's funny because one of my all-time favorite games is Cthulhu Wars, and I backed Cthulhu Wars because I did not back Kingdom Death. You showed me this thing, and I'm just like, <laughs> I this is the deep end of the swimming This is, whoa. This, and some of those sculpts are a little deep end of the swimming pool, too. But I looked at that and thought, man... I kind of want to know what that's all about. So the next mega Kickstarter that came along, I I was primed to just dive into it. And that was like 2013. So, I mean, Kickstarter hadn't become like the end-all be-all per, for smaller publishers yet. Um, so, yeah, that's that's why it's on my list. I mean, I like dungeon crawls. I like dudes on a, the, the adventure games. That's not really dudes on a map. But, you know, the descents and the things like that. So it's already kind of in, a, in the genre that I like. I don't know that I would really appreciate it. I've watched plenty of reviews, but I kind of just want to check that box and say, look, you know, I let that whale, that white whale go, and I'm kind of <laughs> glad I did. Well, that, that's but, the thing, is it was such a profitable Kickstarter, but it's also a game that few people have. The reason why it was so profitable is because it was so very expensive, but it's not like a game that uh, the typical gamer has on their shelf. It's not like, say, Gloomhaven and its popularity and how it's you know permeated the mainstream at this point in a lot of ways. It, it's still a very niche game, but it's also iconic for like what it represented as like a turning point certainly for us and for this hobby now my my number five isn't necessarily like a turning point or anything but it also taps into my other hobbies i i am definitely a dedicated board game player but i am a huge tolkien nerd and i've gone out of my way to play so many different Tolkien games that are like mass market, that are extremely niche, that are terrible, that are awesome. And this extends beyond just board games. This goes to like video games and all this other stuff. I'm struggling to think of what what Lord of the Rings, what Tolkien game you haven't played. Right. Well, it is War of the Ring. But not the War of the Ring that you're thinking of. I'm talking about the 1977 SPI War of the Ring. This is like an old old war game that is on like hexagonal grids and everything and you're moving little cardboard chits around like this is the og you know that it predates a lot of the modern fascination and mainstream uh, appreciation of the lord of the rings so this is made by nerds who were just really really into a book series and wanted to play that out now I know that it doesn't really have that much to do with the War of the Ring that's so popular right now, which is heralded as, you know, one of the most immersive games and certainly one of the best Tolkien games out there. But the fact that it exists as like this grandfather to both the Tolkien fandom 
and also the board game appreciation of Middle Earth. Uh, it's it's a white whale out there for me, and I, I need to get around to playing it. It's like the idea of a licensed board game before licensed board games were anything more than like this edition of Clue or Monopoly. Right, right. And, and it, was a, it was an honest guy. I mean, and those are much rarer. Nowadays, you, you wouldn't try... You know, Die Hard's got a game. Big Trouble in Little China gets a game. You know, like all these really niche, nostalgic fandoms have a game, and it takes nothing to see the next licensed property... But back then, 20, 30 years ago, you know, the only game, a good example, I'll put it on my list of runners up. I actually should have had it on my list now that I think about it. Made me think of the, um, what is it, uh, the Star Wars Queen's Gambit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? That's another one of those, like, I've, I've heard it's actually really iconic. It's a good game. And it's, a, it's kind of an iconic Star Wars game before Star Wars had Rebellion and X-Wing and Armada and Imperial Assault and the 10 million other games that really lived in that universe. This was like the OG of, you know, immersive games. Right, right. And what's so cool is that a lot of these games are being readapted into modern systems with different themes or that kind of stuff. And so, you know, there is access to that stuff, but there's something about those those old games. I mean, you and I both have this affection this intense appreciation for old school fantasy artwork <laughs> and so seeing like a 1977 rendition of legolas looking like something from the ralph bakshi movie the the cartoon movie is it's buck wild it's crazy it's something that i i have got to play but we also got to move on what do you got next john so speaking of of what makes you know what makes the the, the nerd heart tick on this sort of thing, <laughs> so to speak, you know what, what what there's a there's a fascination with old stuff and with things that feel vintage. It it I don't know I, I don't know if it takes you back to a time period if it reminds you of you know seeing something on a shelf at your grandparents' house or something or whatever it is or that game you had when you were a kid. But we've talked about it in some of our reviews, you know, even just things like square cards feels old. And so some of them, when I look at a game like Lords of Vegas, I know it's not that old of a game, but I look at that, you know, the, the 2000s, earlier 2000s games, and they, they lack some of the shine and polish and maybe even plastic flash that, that a lot of games have now. So it just looks kind of like early 2000s game to me. And it's one that, you know, I've heard it's a good game, but it's kind of been on my list of like... You know, I've heard it mentioned enough times. I gotta try this game eventually, but my attention always gets drawn by something bigger and flashier, and I never manage to get around to it. This may be colored by my perspective of coming into the hobby mainly around 2009, 2010, as far as like board games as opposed to CCGs and stuff, but I really think of the early to mid 2000s as the transitional period from what old board gaming was to becoming the this massive hobby that it is now i mean of course it's still a little tiny hobby in the grand scheme of things but as far as the rapid development of new designs and you know things influencing one another like we've talked about it, it seems like this is almost like mirroring some of those early PC games of the late 90s and early 2000s where there was tons of innovation but it didn't quite have the the polish and cohesiveness of games that would come out after that but it still set the foundation for things so I totally know what you're talking about with Lords of Vegas it's some it's some of the, like the, those color schemes that you just don't see chosen as often anymore or the shape of the cards or the the I, you know the, the way that the graphic design is done I don't know there's something about it that just says early 2000s game that you know 
I, I got to get around to playing it eventually. Totally. Well, my next game is actually still in this kind of war game line. It's a coin game. I've played coin games at this point. Well, I played one coin game, <laughs> but Cuba Libre is the game where I constantly see it referenced as this is the the best access point to the coin series, Counterinsurgency series uh, by GMT. Uh, and it's also the one that is the the best pairing of like accessibility for someone who's not familiar or prepared for these like deep six hour experiences, uh, but also still giving you the the full brunt of what coin games are. Uh, I, I've played Colonial Twilight at this point, which is a really great two player head to head game with asymmetric sides and everything. But Cuba Libre is just this one that I've seen kind of lurking in the my periphery for so long as a game that I've wanted to get and just haven't gotten around to it. In that same family. And and you know what's funny, because honorable mentions, I know it's a little early for that, but coin the coin series as a whole is an honorable mention for me, because I've never played a coin game. Right. But if you get on any thread about any war games, that's going to come up. And there are going to be guys who know the history of World War II and, you know, every insurgency that's ever been. And, you know, <laughs> they're, they're going to they're rattle off all of these games. And I haven't played one, but I, I'd really like to one of these days. On my list, in that same family, though, or same general family, is Sekigahara. I've seen some pretty good reviews of this one. Two-player, head-to-head. Um, it, what I like, the appeal there, is something in the same family of, like, maybe Battle for Rokugan. I'm trying to think of some games in my collection that kind of feel that way of wargaming done simpler. Mm, you know, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. the Twilight Imperium. It's not the Game of Thrones, but it's got the, the simpler rule set, more distilled down to the pure strategy. Um, and I also have a thing for Japan. I mean, it's it's a it's a cool setting. The feudal Japan setting is really cool. The minimalist style on the pieces. Um, if you've ever seen any of the, the blocks that you use for it. Um, so yeah, it's it's been on my list for a long time, but... Again, I think it's something about it not being flashy enough that it doesn't ever rise to the top of, like, you know, a jump on him. Also, I think it'd be a challenge to get it played because being two-player, you have to feel like the person you're playing with is somewhat evenly matched. Yeah, I, I honestly have seen hardly anything on it. And so what I'm saying right now is you need to get it so we can play it together because I don't want to shell out all the cash on this, John. You need to get it. Well, and GMT has an interesting reprint yeah, yeah, way of handling sure. things. So if you don't catch it when it's reprinted, it's going to be a pretty penny. Well, that brings me to my next game, which is actually something that you mentioned in passing earlier. This is a more recent game, but I feel like it has swiftly risen to iconic status. It's not one of these games that's just like a overblown Kickstarter that everyone on the hype train is just increasing the rating on BGG. This is one that is genuinely considered in discussions of greatest two-player games of all time, the greatest thematic games of all time, and that's Star Wars Rebellion. I really wish that I had like a friend who had Star Wars Rebellion who I could play with readily and that, you know, it was accessible to me and, you know, that friend wanted to play with me. Do you have any friends like that, John? Do you, no. Do you know anyone no. who has Star Wars Rebellion? I'm just sitting there with uh, Star Wars Rebellion collecting dust on my shelf. You know, we should have a good <laughs> game this, this is a game that uh, is often compared to uh, War of the Ring, the modern War of the Ring, as what War of the Ring did for Lord of the Rings, this game did for Star Wars. And it's incredibly thematic. 
uh, and it has made a huge impression on a lot of people, and I want to get it played. So I'm committing to you here. Yeah, 2021. And, and that's that's something that I didn't mention at the beginning. This was a trap <laughs> okay. all along. This isn't just our top 10 list of games that we missed out on. This is a top 10 list of games we're going to get played this year. Except for maybe Kingdom Death Monster. Okay, okay. <laughs> yep, yep. yep. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to commit to trying to get at least five out of ten of our collective list played. Um, you know, and I think we can nail Star Wars Rebellion on this one right away. Awesome. Speaking of of uh, getting one of these knocked off the list, I know that you can help me out with Suburbia. Mm, yes, so yes. It, you know, kind of a, I don't know if you put it in the family of um, economic sim game. Um, I'm thinking, you know... That Sim City experience, yeah, very much so. Um, but it, you know, it's it's always been kind of fascinating. But again, it's it's one of those things that I think it's really easy. If you're one of those people, it's really easy to get a flashy game off the shelf. You know, something that's dragons and monsters and zombies and pirates and Vikings and whatever the the theme is. Those are easily accessible, and it's easy to see when you when you describe a game about spies sneaking through something or whatever. You know, oh well, and then it's hidden movement. Of course, that sounds amazing. But when you describe, oh, well, we're, we're going to build a, a subdivision. You know, that that it could be an amazing game, but it's something about looking at that on the shelf and it doesn't just pop out as, as readily. Um, and I have the same problem with history games where, you know, I really enjoyed some of the games we've broke since you've been on a history kick. We've been breaking out some of these games and I really enjoy them and I know that I will, but maybe they're not the thing I reach for first. Mm, yeah. And it's just a psychological thing. So Suburbia, that's that's one that I missed because of that and would like to get played. And it doesn't help that the retail game looks like a PowerPoint presentation. Like it doesn't sell itself particularly well, like from the box art to the weird triangular shapes of the, the game. Like it, it doesn't really put its best foot forward, but it, it is a fantastic game. And the collector's edition at least gives it a nice, you know, coat of paint to look a little bit, you know, more refined. Maybe it'll uh, catch your eye next time you're looking at the shelf. If most board game covers are like, you know, models on the cover of magazines, then Suburbia is like the picture of your middle-aged real estate agent <laughs> on the side of the road for for sale sign. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, uh, my next game uh, is a game that I, I'm actually a little bit intimidated by. It's an iconic game because I want the experience of playing this game, but it's not necessarily something that I feel like I would thoroughly enjoy, but I'm very curious about. And because I like knowing more about the hobby, and even games that I don't like inform myself more about my own preferences and why I do or do not like things... And that's Food Chain Magnate. I mean, this thing, when it came out, I want to say 2015 or maybe even early 2016, it was this explosion of people talking about splatter games. And the way that people talk about GMT games are like, dude, it's the latest splatter game. And it like costs like a hundred bucks or something like that. I think Shut Up, Sit Down did a, a uh, really positive review on it. And suddenly it was in the zeitgeist of the board game hobby. And the way that it was constantly described is that it is this incredibly punishing, very intense, very thinky Euro game. And I like Euro games. And I like thinky games. And I do like some games with a level of severity. But there's also something really intimidating about a game where if you mess up on turn one or turn two, that that is possibly going to tank you for the entirety of the game. But its reputation has a, an allure to it that that 
I can't necessarily say about a, a lot of other games. You know, there's something to be said, and maybe this isn't a good description of it, but um, there's something to be said for games that you have to put more work into playing the game to get the reward out <laughs> yes, of them. Yes, yes. And 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 then, but that and that can be extremely rewarding. I, one for me would be like Brass. I I love Brass. I think it's a great game, but I think the first time I played it, I felt like I had to put a lot of brain power into that game where some games are much more accessible on the surface where you can engage with them immediately. This one was like, "Oh my god, I have to I have to contemplate the systems. And, and, and that can, that's true of a lot of those heavy Euro games uh, or heavy economic games or heavy engine building games where you have to contemplate the gears that you're turning. Right. And it's not just I'm going to play the game and then get a, get a strategy going. It's I'm going to study this and come back tomorrow and actually have a better attempt at this. So, so yeah, I can see why that one got missed. So, for me, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take a moment to be pretentious here and say that... Um, uh, you know, when, if someone came to me with some of these games on their list, I would tell them that they're not allowed to have opinions about board games if they haven't bothered to play these, I mean, <laughs> right? Um, okay, maybe I would never say that to somebody, but I still live in fear of someone saying that to me because I haven't played Caverna or Agricola, if we're going to lump them into the same family. But I pick Caverna because I hear generally more popular things about that one or that is a better implementation of those. I, I think those are fighting words for a huge part yeah, of this right. audience. I don't here. know enough to, to so, take a side on that one. Yeah, please, 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 uh, let us know which you think is the better game. Uh, and I know that it's Caverna, but I want to hear why you're wrong if you're in the Agricola camp. And, and tell me, tell me, Jack. Like I can't have an opinion about that entire genre of games <laughs> until I've played Caverna. And and sometimes, honestly, I, I think that about that sometimes. I've played a lot of games in that family. A lot of really nuanced ones, maybe none with as much history, and maybe there are more that are older that really establish that that genre as a whole. But that one, I feel like, is the most recent fundamental series of games. Uh, there's nothing like a new Vea Rosenberg game. I'll shamefully admit that you know, up until this year, I hadn't played Castles of Burgundy of all yep. things, and that was another one that 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 was this year has been that year of like, oh man, I I need to go back and check some of these boxes and fill in some of these holes where I. I can't believe I missed that somehow. Well, before we get to my number one, the the final game that we have listed here, uh, I did throw it out to Twitter to see if anyone who uh, watches the Cardboard Herald on the regular has any thoughts on their own most iconic game that they haven't gotten. So I haven't shared these with you yet, so I'm going to bounce these off of you to see if you have any uh, lingering thoughts on these, John. So Kyle Frost of Give Pause, uh, that's a channel that I'll link uh, down below. They, they have some really great stuff, including some fantastic solo play tutorials for like Root and stuff. Anyway, Kyle Frost says, Small World. I have it with three expansions and the game trays holders and know it would be a good hit with a couple of my game groups, but just haven't gotten it to the table. What do you think? Yeah, that would be one of those ones where I'd just be like, man, I think it comes down to when you started as a gamer and how much media you were into. And the media around board gaming has grown a lot right, in right. the last five to ten years. But how much media you, you started absorbing, because when I started with mine, a lot of these ones that I passed up on or that just kind of passed me by had a lot to do with the fact that I wasn't watching the number of reviews and the number of board game journalism articles that I do now. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's a great game. And honestly, if you never get it to the table, I 
eventually moved on and went with the app. Yeah, you've the app said nothing but amazing things about that app. Like whenever I ask, like, yeah, do you play any games and apps? And you're like, Small World, Small World, and what it was, Elder Sign. You played a ton of that. I played a lot of Elder Sign, yeah. And those are just they're just because I think they just they they were B plus for me in a group, but I felt like they were more A plus experiences just being able to pull them up on an app. Quickly jotting notes, top five app games that we need to do. <laughs> okay, so uh, Brooke Nelson says, Arkham Horror, the card game. I've got it shelved, I've got it sleeved, broken token organized, and I've never gotten it to the table. And now I have Barkham Horror too. Come on, Brooke, <laughs> what are you doing? You can play it solo, if nothing else. I mean, the, the, I this was a game that I played for the first time last year with you, John, because you are a nut for this. What are you going to do to convince Brooke to get this to the table? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually contradict you. You can't play it solo. You could play it solo, but I feel like you've just missed out on what it does for you because it's an experience. It does for me everything. So you've played Arkham Horror, the board game, the second edition. Yeah, you yeah, and I yeah. both played that one together. Um, we both played Eldritch Horror. I've never made it around Arkham Horror third edition, but if you like that idea, the idea of playing a game where you're gonna slog through it, survive it, um, engage with a story, but also have meaningful decisions. The board games never offered as much. They were too random. They were too long. The card game offers a, a, a more meaningful game, but still just as much story experience. And some of it makes a lot more sense. Um, I've had a blast with it and have started picking up every expansion now. Mostly to keep the local board game store in business. That's, <laughs> it's, my, it's my charity for the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. You're, you're a real local guy. So Dyson Dragons, another channel, just says Twilight Imperium. That's all I had to say. I mean, that that's enough, I guess. Oh, yeah, easy. But that's that's on a lot of people's list because it is so hard to be played. But um, if you can do it at least once, play yeah. a practice game. That's always my recommendation. <laughs> is sit down, play like a three round practice game. You know, the the day before on a Friday night or something. So now you're asking someone to commit to the day before to play a yeah. three round game, which is probably going to take a few hours because uh-huh. you're going to do a lot of rules look up, and then commit to the next day doing what like a six hour session? Oh, probably eight. Oh, okay. There it we depends go. on it depends on the pace of your group. But I honestly had. Think about other things that you've committed that amount of time to. I mean, if you can waste that much time climbing a mountain or something, you know, or camping or whatever it is other people do for hobbies that sounds a lot physically better for you than sitting around a table for eight hours. If you can do that, then you can manage to put eight hours into something like this. And the way we did it is we sat down on a Friday night and we knocked out an hour or two, you know, practice round. And then we sat down the next day and did our session, but we planned to have, you know, a pizza break in the middle and then we took the dogs out. And so we, we dragged it out, but it was an all day event. And uh, if you go into it with that mindset, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. And if you can only ever do it once, do it that way so that your first playthrough is a good experience and not one where you're struggling to understand it and we'll never come back to it again. So, you know, why did you bother learning? And then the last one we got here is from the board game Hot Takes Podcast. I want to play Concordia so much, but it's so dry looking that nobody else wants to play it. It will happen someday. 
And I take umbrage with this. It is drive looking. It's no, drive it is not. It is beautiful looking. I mean, I, this is the difference between you and I as gamers because I look at that game on the table and I'm like, oh my god, this looks like everything that I want in a board game. This looks amazing. Little wood pieces and you know, like just the the colors on the board and everything. Mediterranean trading. Come on. I mean, how can you go wrong with that? There's no soot covered smokestacks. There's no iron. <laughs> I prefer brass. Um, but no, uh, you know. Concordia is it's a great game. I loved it. I thought it was a, a really fun experience, but it does fall into that family of you got to put some work into understanding it mm-hmm. uh, to really get the most out of it. And I correct me if I'm wrong, I've only played it the one or two times. It felt like a game that could punish you the first time if you make some early mistakes, like it, it might be a little hard to catch up in that engine. Right, right. Well, that brings us to the number one, the the last game on the list here, which is Memoir 44. This is my game that is the most iconic, that I most want to play, that for whatever reason haven't gotten to the table. That's not to say that like it is the game that I, I stay up at night thinking about that I need to play. I would have found a way, but it's something that's always kind of hovered in the background that I've gone like, oh yeah, I'd like to play this game and just never gotten around to it. And I've known about it for ages, like since we were first checking out Small World and going, oh my god, this game is so complex. Memoir 44 was from the same company, and you know, my my grandparents were World War II veterans, and so I there there was a lot about it that I was like, okay, you know, this looks like something I might want to get into. And I've played other Command and Colors games. Right. And that's, this that's is- the worst part, is, <laughs> is I've played several others as well. Yeah, so Memoir 44 is just the one that's kind of like hovered around in in the the hobby that I know I would probably like it. It has a theme that's of interest to me. It has a ton of content out there and it, it's something that has been a beloved game for so many people for so long and I just haven't gotten it to the table. I, I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it's because when I got into the hobby people had already gotten past Memoir 44. They've already, you know, burnt through it so much. Or, you know, maybe there's just not as many World War II enthusiasts in Alaska. Hmm. Uh, I doubt that, but um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's a it's a combative game and, and those can be harder to get to the table for us anyway. I mean, you've got to have someone willing to go head-to-head. Um, but uh, that, I think, I think what makes these lists interesting... And, and like that one in particular, I can think of a great example is I look at my list and I think, man, there's a couple, I mean, the, the Kingdom Death Monster, I'm sure it's a great game and all, but it's not one that I'm embarrassed that I haven't played. I'm a little embarrassed I haven't played Caverna, you know, and Suburbia, I kind of feel like, yeah, I should have been able to get that one to the table. I've played hundreds of games. There's no reason I couldn't have played that one. Um, but then I look at the games that I have played and go... You played Earth Reborn, which you didn't play <laughs> exactly, Memoir exactly. 44. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, no offense to anybody who loves Earth Reborn, but I just don't think the pedigree is the same. And I just feel like there's this they're it's both head to head games. They're both on a board. There's there's enough similarities. I feel like you could have gotten the other one played and probably done better for yourself there. It's not just that I played Earth Reborn. It's that I purchased Earth Reborn without even reading any reviews or yes. anything. I was like, well, I gotta get this game. This sounds awesome. Exactly. And, like, you you didn't see Memoir 44 and go, oh, yeah, you know, this is an easy... Everybody loves this one. It's a World War II sim. Like, 
you know, surely this will be an easy game to get to the table. Well, I, I think that is what makes these lists so interesting and why it's great to have a conversation about this because, you know, it is nice just kind of bouncing ideas off of one another and also giving each other crap for the games that we haven't played. So, as always, it's been a pleasure having you on, John. Everyone in the audience, if you have uh, any like iconic games that you've always wanted to play that you just haven't gotten to the table, then I'd love to hear about it. And I, I would love to know what your action plan is. You know, get a buddy, uh, make a commitment, you know, make smart goals. Shame in order- each other. Yeah, you know, there's a, a vaccine on the horizon. It's been a hard 2020, and now 2021 is hopefully going to give us a bit of a reprieve. We can finally hang out and play games with strangers, with, you know, broader groups of friends that aren't just in our COVID bubble. And, you know, play those games, the, the ones that you've never had a chance to play and let us know how it goes, because it may be terrible. I may end up getting the 1977 SPI War of the Ring and go, this is awful. And catch us, catch us towards the end of 2021 on our recap when we talk about how <laughs> this was maybe if you started with Mass Effect 2, don't go back and play Mass Effect 1 kind of experience. Shameful. Mass Effect 1 is the best in the series. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know. All right. Well, thanks again, John. Uh, thanks for having me.